Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Great. I like that. Open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 1047. And as we take a look at this passage, if you have any questions or thoughts that you want to share, you can log on to slido.com and type in the code REVCDA there and uh, uh, ask a question. You can do that anonymously if you'd like to. But it's always fun if you put your name on it, then we can have a talk. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for an opportunity once again to gather in this space, to, to just see the sunshine flowing in through the windows and um, to be with one another. God, I pray that as, uh, as your word says, that we wouldn't um, forsake this sort of thing, that we would um, be men and women that, that look forward to gathering together on a regular basis that this uh, opportunity to study the word and to take communion together and to sing t- to one another would be something that we recognize as a benefit to our souls, to our lives, part of the process that you're um, using to make us more like Jesus. God, I, I pray on this, um, this day that we, we celebrate in, in this country called Mother's Day for, for all the moms God, for all the sacrifices that our mothers have made for our benefit, um, for all of those that have um, spent many years raising children and, and for those who are in the thick of it raising little ones, that you would bless, that you would give uh, glimpses of, of the goodness that results from that parenting. God, I pray for those this morning who have, have lost their mother, who, are, who on this, this day are, are mourning that. Pray for those that maybe have wanted to become mothers and are, are unable to, and that this, this holiday is not one of rejoicing, but one of sorrow and, and, and longing. God, I pray that, that you would just be in the midst of, of those hearts as well with comfort and, um, and peace by your Holy Spirit. And God, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would teach us, that you would speak to our hearts about these things, that you would help us to be more in alignment with who you are and how you would live us, how you would see us living our lives as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So, there are a lot of really great rides at Silverwood, but the worst one, does anybody know what the worst ride at Silverwood is? And this is, this is not subjective. There is, there's only one right answer. Oh, and it's not that. No, no, that's fun. If you, you want to get wet. It's, it's the cars. It's the cars on the track with the little steel rod in the middle, right? You know why it's terrible? Because... Those cars are so out of alignment that you have to like grab the wheel and constantly push pressure on it to get it to go straight. They're not fun at all. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, it's true. Maybe it's all, all of your cars. Maybe you're well-practiced in this. <laughs> there is this, this problem when, when you have to fight to go straight. 
right? And as we read chapter four, the first part of chapter four to the book of the Thessalonians, Paul is beginning to shift from this long period of thanksgiving to kind of zeroing in on some things that he thinks the Thessalonians need to be aware of. They're pretty new followers of Jesus. Paul taught them a lot, but he had to leave town in a hurry. And he sent Timothy to see how they were doing. And we can assume that Timothy came back with a report. Hey, the Thessalonians, they're doing really well. They're doing great here and here and here. But, but there's a couple places that they're just a little bit out of alignment. They're following Jesus, but, but they're starting to drift a little bit. And so Paul is going to talk about two things this morning, two big bucket issues that he thinks the Thessalonians need a little bit of course correction on. And it's not a lot because he says in a couple places, hey, you're doing it. You're going. You're walking with Jesus. Now, now just do it even more. Just keep it up. But maybe he senses that they're just a little bit of out of alignment with their walk with God. And it's, it's just, it's just kind of hard to keep, keep going the right direction. And I wonder if maybe that would be the same thing that he would say about our lives today. So as we start this chapter, we read, additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So this, this language, um, as you are doing, could also be translated as you are walking. And if, if you've been around the scriptures for any amount of time, you're probably familiar with this idea of walking. We, we even talk about this. This is one of our like Christianese things, like how's your walk with God? Ever, have you ever wondered like, what does that even mean? Turns out walking is a metaphor that is constantly used throughout the Bible, starting way back in the Old Testament to talk about a close relationship with God. We see way back in Genesis that Enoch, one of the very first humans, it says that he walked with God, and it was a descriptor of his closeness. We hear that Noah walked with God. We hear that Abraham walked with God. And so these stories start to create this idea in the Jewish way of thinking that the way your life is ordered is the way that you walk. John Byron writes, pleasing God cannot be viewed as a series of random or even determined acts that one performs in order to receive a gold star. It is a way of living that permeates the individual to such a degree that pleasing God is no longer simply about what I should and should not do. It is who you are and the way you conduct all of your life in relation to God. The way you walk is deeply connected with just who you are as a person and how that expresses itself in the world. And going back to our, our car metaphor, you can, you can drive your car and be headed toward a certain direction and constantly be putting pressure on the wheel so that you don't drift, constantly fighting that like you do at Silverwood, all the way down the road, and it can be exhausting to do that. Or you can fix that problem so that you could even let go of the wheel and continue to move straight. That's my, one of the favorite things about my terrible little car is that uh, it drives real straight. Like I can let go of the wheel and it'll just keep on going. And as we think about some of these, these moral, ethical categories that we're gonna take a look at here, 
I think it's important to think about when you approach these things, when you approach sexuality, when you approach work, when you approach generosity, what are you doing? How are you handling that as you move towards Christ? Are you, are you grabbing the wheel and pulling on it tight to make sure it goes straight? Or are you just kind of heading that direction? There's been some studies done on the difference between willpower and habit. And a lot of times we think that the walk that we have with God, the time that we spend directing ourselves towards a certain goal in our life with Jesus, that's a willpower thing. We need to, we need to have the willpower to, to pray or to, to love or to give or whatever the, the discipline is. But studies have shown that willpower is a finite resource. Uh, we can develop it like a muscle, but it will run out at some point. That's why oftentimes if you struggle with particular sins, you, you might find that you struggle the most in the evening because you've expended all of your willpower all day long and that bucket of energy is gone. In contrast, forming habits, becoming a certain kind of person, that doesn't require you to deplete your willpower. It allows you to go without using it, without struggling for the direction. And creating holy habits as a follower of Jesus is like driving that car with its wheels in alignment. And this is the kind of encouragement I think that Paul is giving the Thessalonians. He's not rebuking them because they're wildly immoral people. He's not saying, I can't believe you. It's not, this isn't 1 Corinthians. If you've ever read the first letter of the Corinthians, Paul's like pulling out his hair going, I cannot believe you guys. What is wrong with you? He's not saying this. He's saying, hey, you Thessalonians, you are going the right direction. You are running well. Keep it up. Get stronger. So what areas are top of mind for Paul? The first section here is about holy sexual habits. In verse 3, we read, For this is God's will, your sanctification. Sanctification is the same word we could say holiness. I think it's, it's really funny, especially young people, ask the question, what is God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? What does he want from me? There's several places. You could do a, a study if you, if you get open a, a web browser and, and search for these words. But there's a few places where God just tells you. And this is one of them. This is God's will for your life, that you be holy. Sanctification, holiness. Gordon Fee says, this word group with its decidedly moral overtones belongs exclusively to diaspora Judaism and early Christianity. Nowhere in known pagan literature is anyone concerned with holiness or holy living. This means that for the Jewish people and the early Christians, this idea that you would form your life around a standard that looked like the God that you served, that was a unique thing. The, the pagan culture around them did not consider that important. And so just the very fact that the Christians were saying, hey, we are called to look like our God, to live lives that look like the one we serve, automatically that made them weird. 
I've used this metaphor before, but, but holiness is, it has to do with being set apart. And um, in my home growing up, we had this, this big wooden hutch, and then the hutch was this wooden case, and in the wooden case was, you opened up the case, and there was this velvet-covered bottom with all of these slots, and in the slots was all this golden silverware, or golden, fl- I guess it's not silverware if it's golden, is it? It's flatware, the forks and knives and things, and, and all of those things, they came out like twice a year. They came out on Thanksgiving and Christmas. We didn't just eat our snacks every day with these golden forks because they were, they were holy. They were set apart for special use. And this is, this is the identity that we're called to have as Christians, that we're called to be holy. We're called to be set apart. One place where, where God talks about holiness is in Deuteronomy 14. He says, you are sons of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or make a bald spot on your head on behalf of the dead. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. This is really important because God is giving them instructions about not participating in pagan religious services. This is the whole cutting yourselves or making a bald spot. That would be a religious practice that the people of the nations that they uh, that there were neighbors would do. And, and God says, no, I don't want you to do that. But he doesn't say, I don't want you to do that so that you will become holy. He says, I don't want you to do that because you already are. See, our holiness as God's people comes from the fact that he chose us. He set us aside. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we have to get after. It's something that is a status that we have. Because we have been chosen by God, we are holy people. But additionally, holiness is also a way of life that we participate in, not to earn holiness, but as an expression of that holiness. John Byron again says, the holy acts performed by God's people are because they are a people called by God to be different, not so that they can become that people. If you're a Christian this morning, you already are a son or a daughter of God. You already are holy, set apart, special, The way we act in the world doesn't make us holy. It is an expression of who we already are. John Piper says it similarly. He says, one of the ways the Bible talks about our action in relation to our standing in Christ is to command us to become what we are. For example, using Old Testament ceremonial language, Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Piper makes the point that Paul says that, that he, he encourage us, is, encourages us in the, with the metaphor of unleavened bread to be unleavened bread, but he says you're already unleavened bread, so just be who you already are. We are holy. The encouragement is let's act holy. And so Paul says God's will for your life, church, is that you be holy. Well, what's that look like? The last part of verse three, that you keep away from sexual immorality. One of the ways that the world criticizes the church is by mocking us for how fixated we seem to be on sex. But the thing is, one reason we often talk about sex is because the Bible talks a lot about sex. And the reason that is, is because the Bible is speaking to its culture. Our world has a lot in common with the world that Paul lived in. 
And he talked about sex because everyone in his culture was talking about sex. And this is the world that we find ourselves in. Sex is used to sell hamburgers. People are measured, their success is measured by their sexual prowess. Every second, 28,000 Americans are watching pornography on the internet. We've created whole categories of identity that are wrapped up in our sexuality and our experience of sex. And we've made them the primary identity marker for who we are. The reason that sex is such a big deal for the scriptures is because it's such a big deal in our culture. Byron says, one cannot be faulted for thinking that Paul was a bit preoccupied with other people's sexuality. It seems to surface in just about every one of his letters. In fact, he has more to say about it than Jesus. But this is symptomatic of Paul's realization of just how powerful of a force sexuality can be and how quickly it can destroy the lives of individuals and communities when it is not controlled. Sexuality is a powerful force and it is deeply connected to who we are as human beings. Our sexual identity and sexual expression shape us in ways that we don't always even understand. Shane Wood says God and Satan target sex because they understand that sex is an essential tool for understanding the incarnation, for understanding transformation, and for understanding divine union. In some ways that are deeply intuitive to us, but also not on the surface, we don't always grasp them with our understanding, our sexuality teaches us profound things about God. So how... What is Paul's command to us regarding our sexuality? It says in verse 4, Each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. The first thing that Paul says is, we should be people that exercise self-control. Control your own body. This is way outside of normal for his culture. Greco-Roman culture was very much not into self-control. While this advice should and is applied to women as well, in Paul's context, men had virtually no restrictions on their sexual behavior. A Demosthenes, who is a philosopher of the time, says, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children. Men were allowed to and expected to be able to satisfy their sexual desires anytime that they wanted. And if you were wealthy enough, if you could afford it, you could do that. And Paul says something radically different here. He says, no, you should be self-controlled. As we think about applying this to our culture, the idea that, that men and women should be able to satisfy their sexual desires in whatever way they choose, whenever they want, like that's, that's the world we live in, right? We have whole uh, industries of dating apps that are created for casual hookup culture. Internet pornography has allowed even the, the least wealthy among us to pursue their de sexual desires whenever they want. But part of being holy, part of walking in sexual holiness, being set apart for the Lord is recognizing that your sexuality actually doesn't belong to you. It belongs 
to God. We talked about this back in our Genesis study when Abraham got circumcised. If you remember, that Abraham um, misused his sexuality, and he harmed his slave Hagar. And then we won't get into all of the messiness of that situation, but the very next thing that happens is, is God reveals himself to Abraham in the covenant of circumcision and basically says, this part of your body that you've done bad things with, it belongs to me now. I'm going to be in charge of this. And Paul encourages the Thessalonians that if they have the Holy Spirit, they are not enslaved by lust. The Christian has the power to deny himself or herself and experience a supernatural self-control that those outside of Christ don't have access to. We, were, we, we just finished a series going through the fruit of the Spirit in youth group. And the last one in the list is self-control. And so before all the kids showed up, I got a bunch of candy, little like um, peppermints and Tootsie Rolls, all the cheap stuff, you know. And I laid it all out on the table. And immediately all the kids showed up and were like, what's this candy about? Can I have a piece of candy? Nope. Can't have a piece of candy. And they, they're smart. They, we're talking about self-control tonight, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Yeah. But one of the things that we mentioned when we were working through this idea was that self-control requires access. Self-control is only activated when you have access to the thing that you want. If I hadn't brought the candy, if it wasn't out on the table, no one would have been like, man, I really want a piece of candy. It wouldn't have crossed their minds. But because it was out in front of them, they all of a sudden had a choice to make. They could indulge their desire for the candy or they could exercise self-control. And they were only given that choice because the candy was there. And so just like the Thessalonians living in a sex-filled culture, we live in a sex-filled culture where we have access to all of these things. And God calls us to self-control. And he says, don't act like the Gentiles, the, the, the non-Jewish people who don't know God. Right? There's this, this category of people, people who we would say people who are not Christians. So they, they, they are slaves to their desires. They don't have this self-control that comes from the Holy Spirit. But we do. And Paul says the reason why they live this life is because they don't know God. Our theology flows into everything else that we do. It's a pretty famous quote by A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The Christian sex ethic is self-sacrificial, one man, one woman, lifelong commitment to love and partnership as an expression of not just a good relationship, but actually how God sees his church. Listen to Paul again in Ephesians. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. In some way that we can't fully understand, God's plan for our sexuality is a picture of the way he loves and pursues and cares for his people. 
And this way of living is something that should make us radically different from the world around us. But then he, he kind of narrows down on this general sexuality thing, and he says, this means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, So we also previously, as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So Paul focuses in not just on sexual immorality in general, but he focuses in on relationships between Christians. Don't take, tra transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister. And I think Paul is, is thinking about what we would kind of categorize broadly as sexual abuse. And there's a couple scenarios I think that would have made sense in the first century. And the first one would be a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife that was not honorable. A relationship in which one spouse feels used, manipulated, objectified. See, a Christian sexual relationship between a husband and wife is supposed to be mutually self-giving, loving, and respectful. Neither partner has the right to act on sexual lust against the will of the other sexual partner. The fact is 10 to 15% of married people, men and women both, have been coerced into sex by their spouse. And this is not, this is not okay. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, a wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. And some people strangely stop there. But the very next sentence is, in the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. In this scenario, a married couple is at a, is at a standstill if they're not in agreement about how to express their sexual love to one another. And neither one of them has a right to coerce the other. Another possible application in Paul's context, this command would, would have to do with the presence of slaves in the Roman household. John Byron says again, the nature of slavery meant that all slaves of both sexes were forced to make themselves subject to their master's desires. So there's many slaves in the early church who would worship on Sundays alongside their masters. And Paul rarely calls for the full disillusion of slavery. He's constantly chipping away at the institution. He's constantly advocating for a totally different understanding of the master-slave relationship. And it's possible that a Christian man might assume that his slave was still at his disposal for sexual favors. And Paul says, no, she is your sister, he is your brother, and you are not allowed to take advantage of them. And this isn't just like a recommendation either. Paul throws some weight behind this. In this text, he's alluding to Psalm 94, which in part says, Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine. Rise up and judge the earth. Repay the proud what they deserve. Who stands up for me against the wicked? Who takes a stand for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my helper, I would soon rest in the silence of death. If I say my foot is slipping, your faithful love will support me, Lord. When I am filled with cares, your comfort brings me joy. Can a corrupt throne be your ally, a throne that makes evil laws? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord is my refuge. My God is the rock of my protection. He will pay them back for their sins and destroy them for their evil. 
the Lord our God will destroy them. Paul's serious here in his warning against sexual abuse. To take advantage of someone sexually, especially another Christian, is incredibly wicked, even if it's done in secret, even if it seems like nobody knows. God knows, and he will avenge. And then, and then Paul pivots, maybe a little abruptly, but this is just, again, that Timothy's probably brought back a report. Hey, these are some things that the Thessalonians are a little, um, might need a little talking to about. And he says in verse 9, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you're doing this towards all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So again, we're not exactly sure what Paul is referencing. All of these letters of the New Testament are one-sided in that sense. We're reading someone else's mail. Paul's not speaking to the whole church, most likely, but he's trying to gently poke at a minority of people that are taking advantage of the love of their fellow Christians by refusing to work. And he has this relatively gentle instruction here, but it seems like they don't listen to him because in his very next letter, I want to read you a little bit of 2 Thessalonians. He says, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. So over the course of two letters, Paul is identifying a group of people in Thessalonica who for some reason are refusing to work. And this is the, other, the, the second kind of uh, body of instruction that he wants to give them. Hey, make sure that you're practicing sexual holiness. Now let's talk about your work ethic. He starts this section by talking about brotherly love. The word is Philadelphia. And it was commonly used in the first century for love between actual siblings. And so the idea that Paul is using it to describe the kind of love in the community of Jesus people is pretty revolutionary. And we talk about this a lot, but as Christians, we are part of a new family. We've been adopted into God's family, and we are brothers and sisters. This is the common language of the New Testament. Our ties in Christ become deeper and stronger than even our blood relationships. And Paul tells the Thessalonians that, man, I know how well you love each other. But he still has some instruction because a few people, they need to hear it. And he calls this out later in 1 Thessalonians. He says, we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. 
The Greek word that, that he uses for idol, it doesn't, he's not talking about people who are lazy, really. He's just talking about people who straight up refuse to work when there is an opportunity to do so. And so we can kind of try to put the pieces together based on this passage and the one in 2 Thessalonians. Larry Shogren says, they emulated Paul and Silas by doing evangelistic work, but unlike them, they asserted that they deserve support from the churches. And this is just a guess, but it could be that they've decided, like, we're going to give our lives to just sharing the gospel with people. So we're going to quit our jobs and make the church support us. And that's possible. We don't really know. But whatever the reason, these, these people are taking the resources of others in the church community that could be used to meet the needs of people who are in a different place where they really can't work. And he calls them, he says, live, work hard to live a quiet life. He says, seek, make it your aim. And quiet in this case, according to Gordon Fee, has to do with some of them not being disruptive regarding the lives of others, which is made clear by the two elaborations that follow. He's not saying that, that quietness means you should um, be physically quiet, but instead to be um, not disruptive to the, the other people around you, not constantly causing problems for those in the church. Paul's call to the idle person is similar to the lustful person. Don't take advantage of a brother or sister. Organize your life in such a way that you don't take advantage of others. And he says, mind your own business and work with your hands. Work so that you can provide for your own needs. And Paul isn't necessarily saying that everyone should be involved in manual labor. He's saying that we should be doing our own labor. So all of you who are accountants and software, de software developers, you can uh, keep your jobs. John Stott writes, what Paul is condemning here is not unemployment as such when people want to work but can't find it, but idleness when work is available but people do not want it. See, in Paul's mind, the church should be a place where we can step into the gaps that are caused by job loss, illness, injury, family disruptions, and help people get through a season of need. And, and we, we see this played out in our church community all the time. But Paul's warning here is for those in the church that are perfectly capable of working for a living and for whatever reason just aren't. And I think this is an, an, it's an interesting text to think through in the moment that we are living in. We, we are in the midst of a generation of adults, my generation and the, one, the adults that have come after me, that have grown up believing that the work that we do must be in alignment with our passion. That whatever we do in the world is something that must fulfill us. And some of us are fortunate enough to experience that fulfillment at certain points in their lives, but that's not always gonna be the case. And for those of you that are maybe younger here this morning in your 20s, you're probably going to experience both sides of this as you progress in your work life. You're gonna have jobs that you love and are so wonderfully fulfilling and joyful, and you're gonna have jobs that are just terrible and suck your life from you. But you're still called to work. Some of you may grow up for the rest of your lives and never make a living doing the thing that you're passionate about, and that's okay. 
Kevin DeYoung in his book, Just Do Something, which I highly recommend, he says, it would be a good exercise to ask your grandparents sometimes if they felt fulfilled in their careers. They'll probably look at you as if you're speaking a different language because you are. Fulfillment was not their goal. Food was and faithfulness too. Most older folks would probably say something like, I never thought about fulfillment. I had a job. I ate, I lived, I raised my family, I went to church, I was thankful. And again, I would, I would say that's probably true for some of you in this room that are a little bit older, that you resonate with this idea that, yeah, like I just had to go get a job and I didn't really think about what fulfilled my passion. I needed to put food on the table. Work like this, which supports your needs, and when there's extra, allows you to help meet the needs of other people, that's a good thing. It's a holy thing. Remember, this is God's will, your holiness. And one of the ways you experience that is through a healthy understanding of work. Tim Keller says, in short, work, and lots of it, is an indispensable component of a meaningful human life. It is as a supreme gift from God and one of the main things that lives that gives our lives purpose. But it must play its proper role, subservient to God. It must regularly give way not just to work stoppage for bodily repair, but also to joyful reception of the world and of ordinary life. Keller's comments are helpful, I think, because we can just as easily swing away from not working hard to making work an idol making sure we are following all the right hustle culture influencers and working long hours to make our first million, right? And that's, that's the culture of death. I just, um, I got rid of almost all my social media, but I've still got LinkedIn for some reason. And I don't understand LinkedIn, but I, I skim through it every once in a while. And there was a, a post by some business influencer and he, I forget what he made, he made something. And he was bragging about how much time he skipped out on his family. He was actually bragging about missing dance recitals and family dinners, how he wasn't ever on vacation. Why? Because the thing that he made was going to live forever. Gosh, that's so stupid. But it had so many likes. Yeah, I want to I make a widget that outlasts me when I'm gone. See, the truth is, it will not outlast you. You will be around a lot longer than that. We have to be people that work hard, but don't idolize our work. And that takes balance. But then look at what he says is part of the reason for this. Verse 12, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. It sounds really holy to say that you don't care what other people think. It's just, you know, I'm just going to do what I think is right, and who cares what people say? But Paul says that you should care. That an attitude that doesn't think about those outside the faith will quickly harm the witness of the gospel. Multiple times in his letters, Paul writes to churches and say, hey, says, hey, you need to be aware of how non-Christians are viewing you. You need to understand how the world outside sees the church. And it's a gospel issue. It matters so much to the people that don't know Christ. 
Because here's the reality. If you're a Christian here this morning, you believe a message about a man who was dead, who stopped being dead. You believe that an immaterial being who is somehow also the same as that man, but also different, lives inside of you and gives you supernatural power. You believe that you've been promised a life forever in a new world where pain and sorrow does not exist. And you also believe that in order to get all these things requires your admission that you are totally broken and incapable of being the kind of person that you know you need to be. And that your priorities and your desires in your life need to be given up so that you can pursue a whole new life following that formerly dead man through self-denial and suffering. That's a lot, isn't it? We don't think about it, but it's a lot, and it's hard. And so Paul's aware that accepting the gospel is enough for people to grapple with. It's true. It's good. We want those outside the church to believe in Jesus. But seeing Christian people take advantage of others is not something that needs to get in the way of that. And unfortunately, that's the kind of thing that shows up in the news, doesn't it? So as we wrap up, I want to just speak to two different issues surrounding work and money. And the first one would be the question, like, what if, what if I'm in need? What if you're someone who gets sick or injured or the economy tanks and there's just no jobs out there? The reality is that's what the resources of the church are for. And it, it would be easy to hear this message, and, and we all want to put ourselves in a position of strength. We all want to be the people with the resources that give generously. And to find yourself in a position where you cannot get by, you might feel guilty for thinking that you need help. But the reality is most of us go far too long without asking for help not letting anybody know how hard it is. We come to church and we put on a happy face and we say we're fine and we just don't have any relationships that we can share. Like, hey, we're really in need. We're really struggling. But, but we need to be a church that takes care of one another's needs. And part of that means we need to be people that share our needs. And I think if you're like me, there's a certain amount of embarrassment that goes around the idea of like, man, we're really struggling right now. But that's put on us by a culture that requires us to be successful in all areas of life. And the reality is the church exists so that we can support each other in our need. The other kind of person maybe is, is maybe more of us in this room today. And, and that, that's the person with the question, what if I have resources? What if I'm one that, that works hard and earns a living? What then? And this is, a, this is a hard one for me because I, I feel like, I was talking with my wife this week, I feel like we're generous people. We give regularly to the work of God. But I'm constantly convicted by the way that Christians in earlier generations understood the way we were supposed to see wealth. I want to read you a couple quotes from, from the centuries. In the fourth century, Basel wrote, The bread you do not use is the bread of the hungry. 
The garment hanging in your wardrobe is the garment of the person who is naked. The shoes you do not wear are the shoes of the one who is barefoot. The money you keep locked away is the money of the poor. The acts of charity you do not perform are the injustices you commit. You ever think that? You ever look at all the clothes in your closet and, and, and all the ones, I just never wear these anymore. Yeah, well, they, they don't belong to you. They belong to the people that don't have any clothes. That's such a paradigm shift for us as, as wealthy Americans, and I would, I would put that label on al almost all of us in here, I think. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, a little while later, says, man ought to possess external things not as his own but as common so that he is ready to give them to others in their need. There's something I, I learned years ago from a talk that Andy Stanley did. He said, you should never own something that you're unwilling to loan to a friend. And if, if there's anything in your possession that somebody says, hey, can I borrow that? And you're like, nope, then you shouldn't own it because you're not stewarding it well. Aquinas is saying something similar there. Finally, John Wesley in the 1700s, he says, when a man becomes a Christian, he becomes industrious, trustworthy, and prosperous. Now, if that man, when he gets all he can and saves all he can, does not give all he can, I have more hope for Judas Iscariot than for that man. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> and Wesley here is, is it's, fun, it's interesting because he's talking about earning as much money as you are able to earn honestly, right? Don't go out and, and steal and rob and cheat people to earn money, but work hard, earn a living honestly. And then he says saving. But when we think of saving, we think of like 401ks and Roth IRAs, and, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But what he means is living a life as simply as possible so that you don't have to spend all that money that you earned on yourself. Living with as few expenses as you can. And then he says, taking everything left over and giving it away to those who are in need. And ideas like this honestly really trouble me because we are materialistic people. And I'll say that about myself as well. Like even the poorest people in this room, I would argue, have more material wealth than most people throughout the world and throughout history. And I'm not sure what to do with that, honestly. Part of me reading these, these ideas about how these, these ancient Christians understood the call to generosity, part of that energizes me. Part of that wants to make me sell everything I own. My wife usually calms me down when I get in that mood. But part of me really likes my stuff. I know this is something that I continually have to pray about. Right now, some of you know this, we're remodeling our bathroom. First of all, like, did we need to remodel our bathroom? No. We wanted to remodel our bathroom. We had some extra money to remodel our bathroom. And then we made choices in our remodel that we didn't need to make. We bought some things that were nicer than the alternatives. Is that right or wrong? And I just wonder, maybe that's the wrong question. Is, maybe it's better to say, is it best? And I don't know the answer to that. 
I don't know what to do with that. The way we, the way we own things, the lifestyles that we live. It's a, it's a difficult place to live in. There's a tension there that's hard to shake. And I think it's good for us to kind of just live in it for a little while and ask some hard questions about the choices we make with our money. As we begin to take Paul seriously, whether it's in the area of our sexuality or the area of our work ethic or our generosity, maybe it feels like this road of holiness that we're being called to drive down is impossible because of how out of alignment we are. But I, I, think, I think we can be encouraged today as a community. I think we can be encouraged just like the Thessalonians are encouraged. Paul says it. He says, hey, you guys, you are doing this. You are living this life. The Holy Spirit's call on you is being fulfilled in so many different ways. Keep it up. Keep going. Make progress. Paul says to the Philippians, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So there's this, this dual reality that the Holy Spirit that lives inside of his people is pushing us on, is energizing our walk. But we're also called to come alongside and to walk with him, to make choices, to, to think deeply about these things, to not just put our lifestyle on autopilot, but to continue to ask questions. How am I living my life? Am I measuring up to the call that Christ has for me? In what ways do I need help? In what ways have I not fully internalized what it means to follow Jesus? And I'm still like fighting with the steering wheel. But the spirit of Christ, as we, as we close, the spirit of Christ lives in you, Christian. And he gives you the power to live a life of sexual purity, of an honest work ethic, and love for others through generosity. And if we commit to be people who want to listen to his voice and do what he says, I think we will continue to grow more and more into the holiness that we are already called because of who we are in Christ. Let's do some questions. What are your thoughts on the modern missionary format of raising 100% support from churches? So, okay, so what comes to mind, I think it's a Chesterton quote. When he talks about the, the difference between being a conservative and a progressive. And a progressive, that both, both people are, are making a road. And the progressive gets to, the wall, gets to a wall that's in their way. And they say, we need to tear this wall down. And the conservative gets to the same wall and says, we should probably figure out why it's there before we tear it down. And I, I, wonder, I wonder if this is this kind of issue, 
because my gut instinct tells me that like, it's probably not healthy, but it's also been done for a long time. And I don't know enough about it to know whether or not it's a fruitful way of doing kingdom work. I do know that we have missionary partners, the Hermans who serve in Indonesia, and they, because of a variety of circumstances, have their funding has fallen short in the last year. And they're really struggling. And because of the way foreign um, ministry often works, they're not allowed to get a job to cover that. And they rely on the support of the, the churches that send them. And so they're in a real hard spot because of um, they've lost funding. And what that means is when they come back into town, they're going to have to go from church to church to church to church asking for money in order for the gospel to go forward in, in their context. And, and I don't like that either. So I don't have a good answer for that question, but I think there's always room to ask questions about why we do the things we do and if there's a better way to do it. At what point do you ask for money when you still have resources of your own? Do you sell every unnecessary item you own before asking for help? I don't think so. I think, I think we have a culture, and, and hopefully this is something that, that we are pushing back against in our church. We, we have so many um, kind of ask no questions financial resources. You can go to dozens of places in our community for help with food or rent or utilities, and you fill out a form and you get a thing and they pay for your your bill. And I think there's something about that that's, that's pretty broken in that there's really no relational connection to it. And I think what Paul is assuming about the Thessalonian church is that these people are really deeply relationally connected. So if you're in a situation where your financial resources are stretched, my hope would be that you would have relationships that can help you walk through those things and kind of figure out how best to move forward. And I know that's kind of vague, and, but, but all of these things are really individual. But if nobody knows that you're struggling, and it's, well, it's because I haven't, you know, sold the last of my grandmother's china yet, like maybe, maybe you should talk about it. We're going to take communion. Like we always do. And and I think, I don't want to get too, too weird and mystical, but, but I've come to believe that there's something about the communion meal that we take together that, that does something for us. That it's, it's more than just this like weird snack that we have. But that, that Jesus promised his presence in a special way in the communion meal as we remember his sacrifice for us. And I don't pretend to really understand that. But as you come to the communion table, as you um, reflect on how the Spirit of God has worked in your heart this morning, maybe you've been encouraged, maybe you've been challenged, um, I would want to invite you to the table thinking about these words from one of the Puritans, a guy named Thomas Watson. He says, let not the sacrament be a dry breast. It were strange if a man should receive no nourishment from his food. It is a discredit to this ordinance 
if we get no increase of grace. And again, what that means and how that works is, is kind of mysterious. But God's grace is the necessary component for our holiness. If we want to be people that live lives that are set apart for him, we need more and more of God's grace. And, and at this table, this is one of the ways that we experience it. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.